I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. We're on a mission to make you remarkable. This is the August 30th, 2023 episode of Remarkable People. It is my 69th birthday, and so we're doing something different today. I am going to be the interviewee slash guest, not the interviewer slash host. The interviewer slash host is Valerie Friedland, a former guest on Remarkable People, a remarkable linguist. So I hope that my answers to her questions can help you be remarkable. Off we go. Guy Kawasaki and Valerie Friedland. Thank you for letting me talk to you today. I'm pretty excited. I have a lot of questions, but we're going to start with Little Guy. I want to hear about Little Guy. And I know you grew up in Honolulu. Tell me a little bit about what that was like. What was a day in the life of Little Guy? (laughs) (laughs) School, home, parents, that kind of thing. Wait, how little? Probably, you know, above infancy because you, you know, are not going to know that much about that. But let's talk about maybe elementary school to high school. So what was Guy like? I was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii. I lived in a place called Kalihi Valley. This is a relatively low income place, public housing. I didn't live in the public housing, but close to it. And it was a little dicey at times, very mixed race, but we weren't all singing Kumbaya together. Let's just put it that way. And there's no way you could make the claim that I was from a rich or middle-class family. It was lower middle-class at best. But I have to tell you, I've never felt, looking back or anything, that I came from poverty Maybe I didn't know that I was poor, but I'm not going to build you this case where I I raised myself out of total poverty and succeeded Horatio Elger style because it's not true. My life is not that dramatic. And luckily for me in the sixth grade or so, uh, a teacher convinced my parents to take me out of the Hawaii public school system, put me into a private school. That private school was a college prep school. And for the life of me, I don't know why, but somehow I applied to Stanford and even more so amazing, somehow I got in. (laughs) This is so long ago that back then, being Japanese American, you were an oppressed minority. So it worked in your favor. Today, if you listen to all the lawsuits at Harvard, being Asian American, is a negative. And so it's harder for an Asian American to get into Harvard or so these tiger moms and tiger dads (laughs) allege. So this is how long ago it was. So I went to Stanford and the arc of my life really changed because I went to Stanford. I didn't spend the rest of my life in Hawaii. That's interesting because you bring up the idea of being Asian American and whether that helps or hurts you in these college admissions. I just read something about a study that looked at how teachers might be biased against Asian American children in the sense that the expectation because of stereotypes for how successful that tiger mom type of idea about 
the success rate of Asian American children actually causes teachers to teach, to treat Asian American children as if all of them are highly successful and work focused, which can actually be a huge pressure on Asian American children well, to try to subscribe to that stereotype. But obviously, in your case, it worked out for Stanford to have admitted you whether or not you feel you deserve to go there. I think you probably did and are just being well, humble. But Tell me, before you got to Stanford, I'm really, you know, I'm a linguist, so I'm really interested in the linguistic aspect of your upbringing. So your parents, did they speak Japanese or just English? They spoke Japanese, but not to me. I never learned Japanese. And I was there at a time, so I was born in 54 after World War II, obviously. But at that point, the Japanese-Americans we're trying to prove that they belong in America. And so at an extreme, there's the 442nd Battalion, one of the most decorated parts of the U.S. Army in World War II. And we were trying to prove that we were Americans, not Japanese. And now this is Hawaii. On the mainland, it's even worse because on the mainland, Japanese were interned and so there's a double irony there. So you're interned by the country, and then you go and fight for that country in World War II. That's Japanese logic for you. Anyway. <laughs> I think, so, you know, you find that with a lot of marginalized communities in dominant culture, that yeah. they do all the right things, but it still doesn't get them the recognition that they would hope it would bring. I would say that subsequent to that, I think the Japanese Americans have gotten the recognition and you brought up this interesting point that teachers are biased towards Japanese Americans because they have such high expectations. In my humble opinion, politically incorrect as this will be, I mean, that's a high quality problem. I would rather have teachers have high expectations of me than teachers have low expectations of me because of my race and think that, you know, no, this kid is going to be an agricultural worker. This kid is going to be a manual labor because of his race. So to me, that's much worse of a problem. Absolutely. And the outcome of this study was that because of that bias for high expectations of those students, those students generally achieved that success. So the <laughs> well, outcome of expecting a lot is that p kids perform well. It actually is a really good problem to have for sure. So your parents didn't really speak a lot of Japanese with you. Just like my nope. parents actually tried to do the same thing where they pushed away their native language. They spoke it with each other, but really didn't attempt to teach me French for many various reasons. But I think the era of times past push down second languages or first languages as even second languages for children and really promoted an English only agenda. But when you grew up in Hawaii, you had a lot more at stake in your community to speak Hawaiian or Hawaiian pidgin. So I'm curious about that experience. You probably don't speak Hawaiian because Hawaiian actually has only, I think, 2,000 native speakers, but you have told me in the past that you speak Hawaiian pidgin. So tell me about that, how well, you learned it, what it meant, how you used it. Where I was raised, it's not exactly like we were speaking Queen's English, if you know <laughs> what I mean. And having said that, I distinctly remember my parents telling me to speak English English and not go deep into pigeon. I can drop into pigeon anytime I want. 
And we discussed this when I interviewed you for my podcast earlier, that the pigeon accent in my mind and in my parents' mind, and I think many people's minds other than linguists, it's a negative. It makes you seem ignorant. And I would say that it's kind of the direct opposite of the British accent. And even, I tell you, speaking for myself, when I hear the British accent, I probably assume that that person is more intelligent than he or she really is. Now, it cannot be that everyone with a British accent is intelligence because the normal distribution, there's some dumbass British people too. <laughs> Boris Johnson, for example. But So that's why. So I can control my accent, although... To this day, and I haven't lived in Hawaii for 40 years, if I were to speak publicly, even thinking that I'm speaking good English, there will be people who come up to me after the meeting and say, you know, I picked up a little bit of pigeon. Are you from Hawaii? So they can still pick it up. And I don't know where. It's interesting because I think you brought up a good point. Linguists are the ones that don't think about pigeon in this negative pejorative way. But I think what linguists do is we recognize that the social evaluation of pigeon is negative because of its association with a disfavored group in society. And that's really what we associate almost every disfavored variety is because of the stereotypes about the users. And what it really is indicative of is nothing about that language that's inferior and everything about our stereotypes about those speakers who speak yeah. that language as being inferior. And the history of Hawaii as a subjugated nation lends itself in this sort of colonial system to having the native language be the one that's disfavored. And we see this colonial language pattern all over the globe. <laughs> that's a, I, I think that's the thing that linguists are trying to get across is not that we don't recognize that these are socially disfavored, but we want people to understand the history of why they're socially disfavored and that there's nothing inherent in that system that's pejorative or negative. And it's really about what the dominant culture believes is good and what the dominant culture believes is bad. And we assign bad traits to those that are least like us as a dominant culture and good traits to those that are most like us, which is something called homophily that really represents the way we behave as humans, right? We always treat our own families better than we treat other people's families. Well, that's not always true. Sometimes family is a bad <laughs> thing. Maybe friends, maybe we should say friends, people that are like us, we imbue with better qualities than people that are different with us. We're much more suspicious of that kind Kind of person. And I think that's what's happened with Hawaiian pigeon. The other thing is Hawaiian pigeon is a creole. It's not a pigeon. That's actually a misnomer. It just got fossilized as that name. And a creole is a full language based on an unusual historical development. And I think historically as well, pigeons and creoles are seen as bastard languages. And that's another reason why they're disfavored. But oh. if you look at their developmental history, it's actually quite fascinating and very, very complex. So I just want to have a call out for Hawaiian pigeon here. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do I get what you're saying. Absolutely. This is, this is the first time I've ever heard it described as creole. Is it is it C-R-E-O-L-E, like the cuisine? Yes, it is. Yeah, like oh. the cuisine. It is. Pigeon is 
a language that is used as a, a lingua franca. So it's not used as a native language of anybody. It's limited. It's usually used for trade. So along the West African coast, for example, with it during the slaving period, a lot of those West African languages were pigeons that were then extrapolated to islands where they became creoles because then they started to have native speakers. And so with Hawaiian, of course, is the native language and it served as a lexifier for Portuguese, for Japanese, for English, that all started to have a lot of trade and visibility in Hawaii on the islands. And that sort of grouping of languages ended up creating a pidgin language, which then started having native speakers. So it developed all the capacity of a full language and became a Creole. So Hawaiian pidgin is actually a Creole, not a pidgin. That's sort of a strange misnomer. <laughs> That's the most intellectual discussion I have ever heard of pidgin in my life. <laughs> <laughs> you don't hang out with enough linguists, clearly. <laughs> yeah. What can I say? So give me a couple examples of things you would say in pidgin. Give me a couple of, of useful lines for pidgin to speak well, pidgin. And one of the, I think, underlying concepts of pidgin is you basically turn everything into a question. Right? Okay. So like the intonation if, pattern is always if, up, up rising. Yeah, so if I wanted to tell you, you know, Valerie, let's go eat. Pidgin would be Valerie, you like eat would turn into a question and I swear to God, that's 90% of pigeon. Turn everything into a question. You'll be fine. <laughs> All right. I'm going to use that next time in Hawaii. But so if I'm going to say like, hello, good morning. How are you doing? What would that sound like in pigeon? Let's see. So you want to say hello, good morning. Yeah. Sort of like what you do in the morning when you run into your spouse or something. Hey, how's it going? Did you sleep? Oh, okay. Yeah. That so kind of thing. It would be kind of similar to that. You probably go like, hey, bra, how you feeling, bra? You okay, bra? And would so you call three a woman questions bra? Right there. <laughs> <laughs> would you call a woman bra? Is everybody bra? No, a woman would be sister. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so sister and brother. <laughs> and so when you used it, it was mainly at school, I'm assuming. When I got to this college prep school, let's just say that there was not a lot of pigeon there, at <laughs> least. Not like in the public school system would have been. And you could almost get in trouble for not speaking pigeon because it would be evidence that you have sold out to the howlays. And in a sense, you have. So. <laughs> right, because it's so tied up with identity. I mean, that's what I'm yes. fascinated by is because you were using Hawaiian pigeon to have this solidarity and a sense of community. And even though you're young and you don't realize that's what you're doing, that's essentially what you're doing because you would yeah. use it with your friends at school and you'd also use it to kind of fit in and not be an outsider. Because well, I think, I imagine that's really strongly what Pigeon marks you as is not being an outsider, being from so, that community. I mean, in, in a sense, you, or at least I could turn it on and off. So if I were to go to Hawaii now and I was at a service station or I'm trying to check into a hotel and talk to the valet. Uh -huh. Or if I was eating at a local restaurant, I would definitely drop into Pridgen. So in a real world situation, let's say that you fly to Hawaii and you brought your surfboard and you want the surfboard stored. You're not sure it can get in the elevator. You're not sure it can fit in your room. If you were 100% Haole, you'd have a much harder time than if you were me and I said, hey, bra, I brought my surfboard bra. 
I don't like get them stolen. So, bro, can I put it in my room, bro? Can you help me? Or can you leave it down here? Check it in for me, bro. And I would guarantee you 90% of the time. <laughs> if I had said that in Queens English, it would be tough shit, bro. <laughs> Next time I bring my surfboard with me to Hawaii, I'm trying it. <laughs> you try it. Somehow I, I don't I'll, know that it'll I'll, work quite I'll, as well for me. <laughs> I'll dictate the little audio Maybe I'll just record you and I'll be like, wait, I have a friend that wants to talk to you. <laughs> We're good. This is Duolingo Pigeon Bra. <laughs> exactly. So is it funny for you when you go back, say you bring your family? I mean, your kids, I imagine, don't do they speak Hawaiian Pigeon? Probably not, they, right? Because they've all they have to- no idea what the- <laughs> Do they think it's weird all they, they know go? is hey dad got the surfboard got stored the surf- they just go for the important things that's like my kids they, they don't really care how it happens it's just the happy it happened uh, so when you go over with them and then you drop into pigeon what do the kids say what did your kids say or your wife how is it respond how do you- uh, they think it's the funniest damn thing okay. they ever heard they have no idea what i'm talking about and all of a sudden <laughs> Boards get stored. We get free Cokes. Eats Our car is left restaurant. in the front, not put in the parking <laughs> lot. <laughs> you know, Hawaii also has this thing, which I cannot understand how it can possibly be constitutional, but they have this thing called a Kamaaina rate. Ah, uh, yes. I've seen that. I've actually, yes, I've seen that many times. Right. The locals, so, the locals rate. Yeah. So if you think about it, how is it that just by saying you're local, you get a different price. That cannot be legal. <laughs> you know, it's not uncommon though. Tahoe, I live near Tahoe and it's the same thing in Tahoe. They have, they don't call it a kana what is it? Kana'aina, right? Kama'aina, yeah. Kama'aina. It's not a Kama'aina rate. That would probably create some confusion. It's the locals rate. And if you go into any <laughs> restaurant up in Tahoe, now the secret's going to be out. I'm not going to admit <laughs> I said this. If you go to any restaurant in Tahoe and you say, hey, you used to have a locals rate, they'll give you 15% off or 20% off because it's the same thing. And when we would buy, you know, we have a, a place up there and when we'd buy things for the cabin, we'd all say, oh, we're locals and right there, better price. I think it's not atypical well, of resort communities because there's a natural antagonism between the tourists who are taking uh, the resources and the space and driving prices up and taking things that don't belong to them in many well, ways. And the locals who feel, well, these people provide the economic benefit of their presence. They are taking something from you. And I think that's very common. It happens on Martha's Vineyard as well. There's a famous linguistic study that tracks how the locals used language in Martha's Vineyard in the 1960s, especially men, to separate themselves from tourists, that they would have a certain dialect that was the locals' dialect, and that was how people knew when you were from Ireland or not from Ireland. And these are the Kennedys doing this? <laughs> no, these were the fishmongers, actually. Oh. Those that were usually of, I think well, it was Portuguese descent, but they were all fishermen by trade, which was the historic economic mm-hmm. background of Martha's Vineyard. So I think Hawaii is very similar that there's probably some well, sense of a violation that tourists do. And we're not going to be nice to them and give them a discount. <laughs> They're here to boy up the economy, not to eat free, <laughs> not to get free Cokes or better parking spots. In Hawaii, 
they often ask for your license to prove that you know you have a Hawaii address. So arguably, if you're Haole speaking Queen's English, but you have a Hawaii driver's license, you can get the Kamaina rate. Now, I look local, but my license is California. But there have been times that I can drop into such deep pigeon that I can convince anybody that even with the wrong license, I should get the local rate. <laughs> well, and you should, right? Because you can adopt that local pattern. I think that's perfect reason for getting the locals rate. It should be, can either live here or speak pigeon with the best of them. That's perfect identity <laughs> marking, I think. <laughs> so now I'm guessing at Stanford, you didn't have much cause to use pigeon. <laughs> no, not, so tell me, a- had you traveled much when you were growing up in Honolulu? Not much. I think I went to the mainland once before. Listen, let me be quite honest here. So I got off that plane, Western Airlines. I land in San Francisco. Stanford sends a van, picks you up, takes you to campus. And you know how people have a difficult time adjusting to college and the pace and the competition and new everything I freaking loved it, man. When I stepped out of that van, I said, this is it, baby. I was made for this. I loved the (laughs) economic opportunity. I loved everything about it. The college years, the best years of my life. They were amazing, huh? And so what was it that was unbelievably freeing about that? Was it not being on a small island where you kind of knew everybody that you had grown up with and having this open world no, to explore? I mean, was it the, it was the job opportunity? What was it, you think? I think it was the job opportunity. Okay, we're going to go deep into my psyche here. So okay, now we good. have to well, go back. Well, that's my whole goal here. Yeah. I'm doing this we mind belt. I'm going to show you how insipid my motivation has been. So a few years before I went to Stanford, I can't remember who this person was, but some kind of family friend. And he had a Porsche 911. And we had Toyota Coronas and stuff. But he gave me a ride in that 911. And that was a pivotal moment in my life because I said, Guy, you have got to get a car like this. And you ain't getting a car like this if you live in Hawaii and you work in agriculture or tourism. You've got to go to the big town, baby. And so here I am. This was the step. Land of milk and honey. And (laughs) this is Hewlett Packard is there and all these tech companies. And it was just so different that in Hawaii, you were doing well if you managed a department store, drugstore, hotel, something like that. That was the top of the the pecking order. And you go to the mainland and you see like Hewlett and Packard have this company. Intel has this company and it's so big and there's so much opportunity. It was just the best thing that ever happened. I mean, I can get that because I felt, even though I didn't have that same sort of isolated experience of being in a place that they didn't have the same kinds of opportunity. When I left the South, I grew up in the South and I went to college for the first time in a big city by myself and felt that drive and that success. I think that's the way to describe it. I felt when I got to Washington, D.C., 
the fact that there were endless possibilities for the first time in my life, that yeah. people were moving fast and doing important things. And I wanted to be one of those people that did important things. And it can be as nebulous as that. And it sounds like considering you went to law school for a hot second before you ended up in an <laughs> MBA program, that you weren't really sure what that was going to look like for you, but you just wanted it. And that's why I strongly encourage them to send their kids away and let them see how big the world really is. Now, after they see how big the world is, if they want to live in Hawaii, God bless them. That's a personal choice. But you should make that personal choice with sufficient data. Absolutely. right. And, and now people are afraid of the so-called brain drain. And that's true of every country, right? I'm, I'm sure there are people in China who they used to be worried about the brain drain. Our best and brightest are going to Carnegie Mellon and never coming back unless they're spies. But I think that brain drain theory is vastly paranoid that you have much more to gain by sending your best and brightest away and they become inspired and they create great things and they're an example for the next generation. And yes, some people will never come back. Steve Case, for example, born and raised in Hawaii, went on to create AOL, now has this great foundation to help tech entrepreneurs. Would he be better if he had never left? Would it be better for Hawaii? I don't think so. Not at all. Not at all. Definitely not for personal realization. And I think that's the reality is these opportunities open up doors that wouldn't be available if you stayed in one place. And there's personal growth that's required for there to be urban growth. You can't have one without the other. So I absolutely agree. Have you ever been tempted to go back to Hawaii or is that something that you have no interest in or do you go frequently? Well, What's your relationship with Hawaii now? I'm tempted to go back, but only in terms of vacation. Mm -hmm. Could I live there again? Maybe in retirement, I could live there. But it's a good thing I love to surf because that's a plus for Hawaii. But my life really is here. And even with great connectivity, could I do my podcast from Hawaii? Yes. But I really think I would just stagnate there. Don't get me wrong. I don't want you to paint this picture that somehow I'm going to all these art shows and being like this real intellectual highbrow kind of person. Basically, I write and surf every day. That's, uh, I don't think anybody will get that mistaken view of you, Guy. Okay. <laughs> I think you're pretty down to earth and real. I don't, you know, you're I'm definitely... I'm not sure if that's a compliment or insult. It is. But... No, it totally is. I wouldn't be interested in talking to you if it wasn't that I, uh, there's a true authenticity about you and who you are <laughs> and how you got to be where you are. And I think people are interested in hearing about that authenticity in your path because so many times we hear about people that achieve something and then they kind of let go of who they were at the beginning and I don't feel like that's at all what you have done. That doesn't mean you have to live in Hawaii to be authentic. Part of the problem, Guy, is that you didn't move to Minnesota that has yeah. winter. If you had lived in Minnesota, I think you'd be, oh, yeah, I definitely want to go back to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> no shame on Minnesota, but I've lived there in the winter and it's pretty hard. Uh, I would definitely pick Hawaii you know winter what? over that. The, there was a 10 or 15 year period where I just loved ice hockey. I would play mm. ice hockey three or four times a week. So if I had been in Minnesota during that period, <laughs> I may it still be in perfect. Minnesota. 
They do have, I played broom ball. I don't play hockey, ice hockey, but when I lived there, I did play broom ball, which is essentially, it's a kind of lake, frozen lake hockey just in the backyard. <laughs> and also for people like me that are incapable of, of doing much with a stick, that doesn't result in injuries to others. <laughs> <laughs> but Minnesota does winter well. I will give them that. It's for a place that's so cold, they have a good time. They have a great infrastructure to support it. Yep. No shame in a Minnesota winter. I just like the warm weather. I personally <laughs> love Hawaii, but I also don't know that I could live there just because of the islandness of it. I don't like to be that far away from being able to drive places. Yeah. I kind of like to be able to get in my car well, and go. But you know what? Depending on how 2024 works out, Maybe Hawaii is the place to be. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody's going to move to Canada, guy. I think that's the yeah. goal. <laughs> I'm not moving to Canada. Canada doesn't have good surfing. I yeah. bet somewhere in Canada you could find. It might be a little icy, though. It might be a little chilly. <laughs> okay, so tell me, once you're at Stanford, what did you think you wanted to do? Well, Who did you think you wanted to be in college? To tell you the truth, back then, if you're Asian American, your parents wanted you to be doctor, lawyer, or dentist. And so I took this pre-med course where you walk around Stanford Medical Center and I fainted on the first day. So I figured, <laughs> okay, that eliminates medical. And then dental would be even worse. I don't want to stick my hand in people's mouths for the rest of my life. So that eliminated dentistry. And my father was a politician for over two decades in Hawaii. And he never went to college, never got a law degree. So it was his dream that I get a law degree. So then I went to law school and as you say, I lasted a hot second, which is two weeks. <laughs> and what I really wanted to do was start a high-tech company. And the following year, I went to, to UCLA to get an MBA. And eventually that led to me going to Apple and the rest is history. Let's dive into that history a little bit. So when you say you wanted to open a high-tech company, tell me how that came out. I mean, you just wake up one day and say, oh my goodness, I'm feeling high tech. What, what inspires that? Was it the courses you took at Stanford? Something interested you or you were just fascinated by technology or because of your location in the Bay Area? What was it uh, that made you find that appealing, you think? I think it was the wealth. <laughs> 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 Let's just be honest. Let's just be honest, all right? You've done pretty well on the list of goals. Yep. So, all right. So you go and you go to Stanford, you go to law school for a hot second, and then you end up getting an MBA. And from what I understand, you had a roommate that got you the job at Apple. Yes. After you'd worked for what, a diamond company? I was working in the jewelry business because jewelry business. I was in LA and the UCLA M MBA program was a four day program. And so there was Friday off every week. And which I guess is, that's when you're supposed to study. So I was able to work. And when you're in school, <laughs> at least back then, you did whatever it takes. Sometimes you bust tables in the cafeteria. I worked at the Stanford Music Library shelving books, but I just happened to meet through another Stanford classmate, a woman who was running a diamond department in a local jewelry manufacturer. And so I didn't know anything about diamonds, but I can count. So I literally got a job in the diamond department, counting diamonds and doing stuff like that. And I just really got along with the family who owned that jewelry company. They embraced me 
as family. And let's just say that I'm not Jewish. It was really a quite, quite loving, trusting relationship that I had with that family. And so after my MBA, when all my friends were going to Anderson and Lehman Brothers, you know, sure things, I went to a family-owned jewelry manufacturer. With hindsight, that was an extremely fortunate move because I learned to sell and the jewelry business, the manufacturing business, we sold to retailers who sold to consumers. And the jewelry business is a very tough business. It's built on trust. It's very small. And you can put a ring on a scale and say, okay, there's $75 worth of gold there and there's $100 worth of diamonds. And so there's a scrap value that you can easily assess. And that would be like putting a Macintosh or an iPhone on a scale and saying there's 25 cents worth of plastic and 50 cents worth of silver and whatever. So anyway, you really, really learned how to sell because at some level, everything is a commodity in the jewelry business. And so that sales skill has helped me the rest of my life, including becoming a successful Macintosh evangelist. That's so interesting that that was the gift that that job gave you, because I think a lot of times when people start out, they only spend the time thinking about that next step, not the value of this step. And a lot of times the step you first take, well, even though it's not obvious, has some value that you end up taking out from it and applying later. And so it's a really great example of maybe not your dream job. I'm sure that wasn't, you know, the high tech multi-million dollar business you thought you'd be starting, but it did give you this opportunity to learn how to sell, but also did it not put you in the right place to end up going to Apple because then you had a roommate that landed you the job and maybe had you gone to Lehman or something else, you wouldn't have had that roommate. I wish I could say that's true. So understand that I met this guy, Mike Boyd at Stanford as an undergrad And then I went on this two-year journey into UCLA MBA. And then I worked for the jewelry company for about four more years. And then in 1983 is when he recruited me. So it was quite a while. And I can't tell you that he was making the case to Steve Jobs that this guy can sell because he's in the jewelry manufacturing business. Because (laughs) that... That logic would not work with Steve Jobs. He would quickly see through the bullshit. So what do you think he said about you? How did he sell you to Steve Jobs? I don't know. He sold me as his friend. He sold me as a great guy. But I can tell you, this is total true story, that at the end of my interviews, I had two series. The first series, the job just wasn't right. At the second series, so my friend Mike Boych asked Steve Jobs, what do you think of Guy? And the answer Steve Jobs gave Mike Boyce was, I guess he's okay. You can hire him. But if he fails, I'm going to fire you too. So that was my ringing endorsement by Steve Jobs. (laughs) Wow. And that's a good friend to say, okay, hire him anyway. That shows he believed in you or he was dumb. I don't know which, but I feel like it was he believed in you. (laughs) Well, I'll make sure he listens to this. (laughs) So what was your first job at Apple then exactly? What were you hired to do? Mike Boych was the first software evangelist. He was the one who went to 
all the software companies and hardware companies and convince them to create Macintosh products. I was the second software evangelist. It was my job to do the same thing. Mike Boyce is extremely smart and highly technical. Guy Kawasaki is moderately smart and not technical. <laughs> so this was a transition. It's not exactly like I can say, oh, based on my experience of understanding how gold and diamonds work, let me explain how computers work. That is a dialectical leap. But I did have sales skills because of the jewelry business. And so my job was to convince people to write Macintosh software. And I was the second software evangelist. And for the first year or so, I basically carried Mike Boyce's bags and we, you know, we went all over the country convincing companies. Interesting. So you basically, because you call yourself an evangelist, and I wasn't sure how widespread was that term in the industry? Was that a term you all coined? Yeah. Or was that something pre-existing to your presence at, well, at Macintosh? There was Jesus who preceded us, but then there was this 2,000-year <laughs> gap. Well, there were a lot but, of Southerners, too. I'm from the South, so evangelist means something completely different yeah. there. Well, first of all, <laughs> let's just get this off the table. The word is evangelism, not evangelical. Uh -huh. Because today, evangelical, in my mind, is a humongous negative. So evangelism comes from this Greek word meaning bringing the good news. So my job was to bring the good news that Macintosh software development was a great opportunity, very interesting intellectual environment to program. You could write the software you always wanted. To. Is it so I brought than the, the good other news. software. It's different from other software because Macintosh had, I don't know, 400 calls in the ROM. So a lot of the graphics and stuff was done in ROM as opposed to you having to do it in your own software application. So we gave people a much more rich programming environment than they were used to. I so see. they really so that was write what the, the selling point was. So that's how you had something well, special to and unique to sell them. One of the principles of evangelism is that if you are smart and you tell people why they should write software and you give them multiple reasons, people will tell you how to evangelize them. So we gave them three reasons. Reason number one is this rich software development environment. You could write the software you always dreamed about. Reason number two is IBM PC dominates the software world. IBM is also publishing its own software. So if IBM decides to publish the same kind of software that you publish, you are screwed, buddy. So you better get on two horses. And the third pitch was... Macintosh with its graphical user interface is going to bring people to computing who could never use a computer before. So we're going to expand the market for personal computers. So those are the three reasons we gave everybody. And inevitably, the companies would echo back which one appealed to them. And then you just had to be smart enough to shut up and repeat what they said to them. <laughs> and that's the key to evangelism. What happens if you don't believe in the product? When you went to work for Apple, was that something you were thinking, wow, this is a really cool new development? I mean, you weren't very techie. So oh. or was it, this is a great job to get that Porsche. So I'm going to find something to love about Macintosh. No. What was the relationship? That Even I am not that shallow. But <laughs> let me tell you, so I had become an Apple II user. And I just have this kind of mind that in college, this is 72 to 76. 
the state of the art back then is if you had papers to type, you either hired a typist or you had a typewriter. And if you were really lucky, you knew somebody who had an IBM Selectric correctable with the light, the white liftoff tape. So none of this paint the white stuff over your error. This was you backspace and it lifts off computers. the ink with yes. tape. I mean, those right? typewriters, yeah. yeah. I remember those. They had that little correction. Exactly. Key. So, you know, this was the state of the art. And then if you went through four years of that and you saw an Apple II with a word processor where you backspace and you change the word and then you send it to print. And every time you sent it to print, it was perfect or at least perfectly reflects what you sent to print. That was mind boggling. The concept of word processing, spreadsheet and database was absolutely revolutionary. To put it into context, I think that the ability to use personal computers back then is roughly equivalent to the ability to use chat GPT today. It's that revolutionary. So I loved computers because of word processing, but it was all character based. So it was as if you had a typewriter, but in your computer. And then I get a demo of Mac paint where there's paint brushes and fill patterns and you can drag out rectangles and all that. And then I get a demonstration of MacWrite, multiple fonts, multiple sizes, multiple styles, integration of text and graphics. Let me tell you something. The scales were removed from my eyes. It was religious experience. I started hearing angels sing. <laughs> the clouds parted. I was just totally blown away. Again, to use a very current example, it's let's say you've never seen ChatGPT. And somebody says, okay, let me give you a demo of Chat." GPT. And so let's say this is two small businessmen, right? Or business people. So one owns a dry cleaner and one owns a bakery or a restaurant. And one of them says to the other one, so let me show you chat GPT. You see that Yelp review for my restaurant? It's a negative Yelp review. I'm going to have this thing draft a response to that negative Yelp review. And boom, two seconds, chat GPT has this total empathetic, fall on your sword, fantastic apology for the bad experience at your restaurant. Or let's say there's a positive Yelp review and it creates this fantastic gratitude note on ChatGPT. Or even better, you tell ChatGPT, this is becoming a ChatGPT interview. I know. You tell ChatGPT, <laughs> I want you to write a positive response to this positive restaurant review, but make it a limerick. And ChatGPT does that. Or you say, make it a rap song, and ChatGPT does that. So anyway, I'm telling you all this because when I saw Mac Paint and Mac Write, it was a moment just like that. It was, oh my God, this is magic. This cannot be happening. And so when I first saw Mac Paint and Mac Write, it was good news. It was like Jesus said, God, you have eternal life and you have WYSIWYG printing now. What else do you need? <laughs> A surfboard, maybe. A surfboard. <laughs>
But I did have a Mac as one of my early computers. And from what I had before, which was, I call it the luggable, it was this old IBM DOS machine. Yeah. It was like having angels sing. And I'm not going to say Jew, that Jesus spoke to me because I'm a Jew. And <laughs> unlike you, I do know something about the Diamond Misfits because I'm a Jew. <laughs> Every Jew has some relative in the Diamond business, and I am no different. But I, I didn't know anything about computers and Macintosh was amazing. I loved it. And I have been an Apple user. I've always been just because well, I yeah. find it so user friendly. So I can understand how it was easy to sell. But <laughs> so tell me about that experience of working at Apple that first time that you were there. You had gone on the road. You were selling this product. I have heard you talk about how you were kind of assholes in the Macintosh division, especially to other divisions of Apple, which well, hopefully uh, you feel shamed about today. <laughs> <laughs> that was part of the Steve Jobs reality distortion field, right? He had very high expectations for us, even if you weren't Japanese-American. <laughs> <laughs> but especially if you were Japanese-American. <laughs> so he had very high expectations for us. And quite frankly, because of those expectations, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so he, he wasn't after mediocrity. He really wanted to change the world and dent the universe and all the other phrases correctly or incorrectly attributed to him. And let me tell you something. So working for Steve Jobs was not easy. In fact, for me, it was scary because I saw him rip people in public, just like absolutely rip them to shreds in front of their colleagues. And contrary to every HR theory, I will tell you that that is a very positive motivating force. Positive in the sense that it gets results rather than it's a positive thing Positive to do. <laughs> in the sense it scares the shit out of you and you right. do your best. It's not exactly humanistic. It's not positive psychology. It's not Dalai Lama, Kumbaya, let's complete each other's sentences. But Steve Jobs scared the shit out of me and I was, I was never going to be the person he ripped on. So... That just shows you <laughs> there are multiple ways. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely multiple ways to govern. I mean, that's right. The reality of dictatorships versus democracies. Both are yeah. viable solutions. Well, listen, they're just a different experience for those that live in them. Listen, I could tell you that if the dictator truly is intelligent and visionary and gets things right, it's a very efficient form of governance. It's just that most dictators are stupid <laughs> and they don't have their people's best interests at heart. That's one of the dangers of trying to be the next Steve Jobs is that from the outside looking in, you say, okay, so Steve Jobs, he wore New Balance shoes. He didn't license his Porsche. And then you park in a handicap slot and you wear a black mock turtleneck and you know you wear Levi's jeans and you rip people in public. And so people look at that from the outside and say, okay, I'll get the black turtleneck, I'll drive a German car, or park in a handicapped spot and all that, and I'll be the next Steve Jobs. Not really, you'll just be an asshole. So, you know. <laughs> or you'll be in prison like Elizabeth is, Holmes, right? <laughs> exactly. The asshole part is easy. It's the visionary part that's hard. But let me ask you about him because I don't get the impression. I don't know. I never met Steve Jobs and I don't know that much about him other than that you hear this lore about, you know, he was brilliant and an asshole. But 
what was his motivating factor, you think? Was it that he wanted this thing for everybody or he wanted this thing for himself and he happened to be extremely good at it, extremely insightful about how to get there? What's your impression? In a rare moment of humility, let me tell you that my intellectual ability is not sufficient for me to explain Steve Jobs' motivation. It would be like asking a fish to explain what it feels like to fly. And I'm the fish. You know, there, <laughs> there, are there are people who are fish, closer you know. to him. <laughs> <laughs> but if I had to guess, I'd say that he really wanted to make a huge dent in the universe, that he wanted to change the world. And he did change the world. Now, there are people like Hitler who want to change the world too. So, you know, that's not always a good goal. In fact, I think it's a rare combination that makes it for a positive effect. A lot of times that kind of self-interest and domination technique doesn't often end well, but it certainly did in Apple and in Macintosh. And I think... Up till maybe two or three years ago, I would have said that Elon Musk is the closest thing to Steve Jobs, right? So you could make the argument that Elon Musk has created things that's going to have more of a dent in the universe than Steve Jobs because Elon Musk has, you know, trips to Mars, solar panels, electric cars. He's like got five tunnels underneath cities. He's got five or six things that are very different, all of which can impact humanity in a very positive way. Until Elon Musk somehow, in my humble opinion, went off the rails. I don't know what happened there, but... I think power is a dangerous thing in many ways if left unchecked, whether or not you are brilliant and whether or not you are beneficial in the long run in terms of the things you create. Power is is a hard thing to manage well, and I don't think many people can do it. There are exceptions, but I think with Elon Musk, it has this, I don't know, also his mental state. I'm sure there might be other things that are factors there, but it does seem like when you become so powerful that no one stands against you in many ways, that you have the ultimate power to do so many things, it can be very difficult, I think, to understand who you've become over time. But let's get back to Guy and not Elon Musk, because <laughs> unlike Elon Musk, I think you handle power well and are very, very humble. I don't have that much power. That's <laughs> well, You have the power of your voice and a great history and backstory, I think, that people want to hear. So you went to Apple, you went to Macintosh for the first time. And what made you leave? And how did that experience at Apple propel you forward in your life goals? Okay. Man, I wish I had simple stories for you. I don't need simple stories. I like complicated ones. Okay, so this is complicated. There are two versions of why I left Apple in 1987. The first version is that to be a tech entrepreneur, you cannot stay in a mothership. At some point, you have to leave Apple, start a software company, start a hardware company. You need to go out on your own and become an entrepreneur. And so I saw an opportunity and I took it. That's explanation one. Explanation two is a little more insipid, and this is how it goes. So at that point at Apple, I was a manager. So it was the level in the hierarchy was manager, director, vice president. At the director and vice president level, Apple bought you any car you wanted. 
everything comes back to cars in my life. I see okay? that. There's yeah, a yeah. theme here. Let's just be honest. So I wanted to be a director because I wanted Apple to buy me a car. So my job at that point was to get all these software companies to create great software. So I go in for this review with a vice president and he tells me, you know, guy, the small developers, they love you. These small innovative companies that no one's ever heard of, but they're now they're breaking into success. They love you for what you've done for them. But the big companies hate you. Microsoft hates you. Ashton Tate hates you. WordPerfect hates you. And I'm saying to myself, this is going very well because <laughs> Ashton Tate had piece of shit software and Microsoft was ripping off our interface, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, and Lotus hates you. And Lotus was creating this very weak version of Lotus 123 that did not show Macintosh well. So I'm thinking, this is going really well. The small innovative companies love me. The big companies don't. And the big companies are not doing justice to Macintosh. This is a slam dunk. Should I get a Porsche, Maserati, Ferrari, Lamborghini, or Mercedes? And then he says, so guy, I'm not making you a director because you have failed to get the big companies to support you and to do a good job for the big companies. You Ouch. could have knocked me over with a feather, okay? And wow, so, that how that had to hurt. There so goes then, that Porsche. <laughs> there goes yeah, the Maserati. Yep. Back to Toyota Corona. <laughs> so then, at the time, one of the people at Apple was a guy named Jean Louis Gasset, and Jean Louis Gasset, Apple used to reorganize every six months or so. It was fraught with dynamic change, shall I say? So I go to Jean-Louis Gasset and I tell him this story. I said, freaking Jean-Louis, they didn't make me a director. I'm so pissed off. I'm going to quit. And Jean-Louis says to me, you know, guy, there's going to be a reorg. I'm going to become your boss. And in six months, I'm going to review you again and I will make you a director. So you should shut up and stay. And for the rest of your life, it would be much better to leave as a director level at Apple on your resume than as a manager. I Good said, advice. okay, Jean-Louis, ho-ho, it's using my <laughs> French accent, ho-ho, that piece of shit. So I stayed. Jean-Louis, six months later, to his word, makes me a director. And what I swear to God. Get? Well, I come into that. Oh, but okay. at that point, I was interested in becoming an entrepreneur. And two days later, I resigned to become an entrepreneur. So that's why on my LinkedIn profile, it says director, Apple computer. I was a director for about for two, two days. days. So and you had already, that you were just waiting for that label. Yes. And then plan to leave. So you never got the car. You didn't even no. wait out the car. You couldn't have waited a month. <laughs> <laughs> you were that ready. You were giving up the car. Up next on Remarkable People. It could be that humans are not the center of the universe and we're just a cog, just like a banana slug. And so if that's the truth, then we contribute to this mosaic, but we are not God. And so we have to accept this role that maybe there is something more powerful and smarter than us. If you find our show valuable, 
please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review it. Even better, forward it to a friend. A big mahalo to you for doing this. Welcome back to Remarkable People with Guy Kawasaki. Okay, so then you launched this new tech enterprise. So tell me what happened then in terms of how you took what you had learned at Apple, put it in this new enterprise. And I know we hear a lot about your successes, but tell me maybe about a failure. Did that go well? Was it positive? Everything worked out? Or how do you feel that transition went for you? You went from director, you start this new job, this new adventure, and, and how did that go? Yeah. So I started this new adventure, you'll love this, with two French people. These oh, Jean-Luc? <laughs> no, not Jean-Luc Gasset. Marilyn Delborg Delphise and Laurent Ripartier. So Laurent was a legitimate programming genius. He wrote a, a Macintosh relational database called Fourth Dimension. And so Apple was going to publish Fourth Dimension until Ashton Tate got bent out of shape, which is why they pissed me off. So Ashton Tate was trying to tell us what to do. And so Marilyn and Laurent got fourth dimension back from Apple. And the three of us started this company called ACI US. And so my first attempt at entrepreneurship was a Macintosh relational database company, which did okay, but you know, it was not this humongous success. And honestly, I started that. I started another company called Fog City Software, which did Macintosh software. I've started a venture capital firm called Garage.com. In a second moment of humility, let me tell you that I am not exactly proven as a tech entrepreneur. I've had singles at best. And so it's not like I started a, a Lotus or a Microsoft or a Facebook or Google, anything like that. So people give me too much credit for that. Mm -hmm. However, (laughs) now we got to fast forward to Canva. So Canva, they discover that I'm using Canva. They recruit me. I become chief evangelist. That's 10 years ago. Where were you when you, when you got recruited? What were you doing at that moment? I was fat, dumb, and happy. I was speaking. (laughs) I was writing. I was living the dream working for nobody. I had a great life. I was consulting. I'm charging people for speeches more than I ever possibly thought I could get for one hour of activity that I had a very difficult time with a straight face asking for what I was asking. So I had to get an agent to ask for my ungodly fee and my ungodly expectations of first class flights and all that stuff. Anyway, so they reach out to me and At the time, Twitter had just begun, and Peg Fitzpatrick, she was doing much of my social media with me, and we had this theory that every tweet should come out with a picture or a video, and so she was using Canva to make pictures for every tweet. And Canva happened to notice that I was using Canva and reached out to me with a direct message saying, we noticed you're using Canva. We would love to talk to you. We'll see if you can get involved with us. And literally, I'm telling you, at the time, I saw that tweet, which is just, thank you, God, for showing me that tweet, because there were a lot of direct messages I missed back then. (laughs) So I saw that. I went to Peg. I said, Peg, don't you use Canva? She goes, yeah. I said, do you like it? She goes, yeah, it's great. You think I should help these guys? She said, yes. So based on that due diligence, I told them, (laughs) let's meet. 
And so <laughs> we met. I love them. I love what they do. I think they love me. And so I became the chief evangelist of Canva. So now I'm spreading the good news of Canva, making people better communicators because we've democratized graphics. But I'm not the founder of Canva. There are three founders of Canva. I'm probably number, I don't know, 30, 40, or 50 employee. And now they're at 2,500 people and they have like more than 100 million, 150 million registered users and they're profitable. And so this is the operative theory in my life, which is called Guy's Golden Touch. And Guy's Golden Touch is not whatever I touch turns to gold. I wish that were true. Some people even think that is true, but it's not true. I touched a lot of things that turned to brass. Anyway, <laughs> so Guy's Golden Touch is whatever's gold Guy touches. So I happened to touch Macintosh at the beginning of my career. I happened to touch Canva at the end of my career. Between those two data points, there was a lot of thrashing and flailing and failing. The way it works in Silicon Valley is you throw stuff against the wall. Some of it sticks. You go up, you paint the bullseye around that. You say, I knew Canva would be successful. <laughs> I knew it from the get-go. I think that's really not just Silicon Valley. I think so many times we only see people for their success. Yeah. And we only see ourselves for our failures. And I think that's often the case because we know everything we've done, but we hardly ever know everything anybody else has done. And all we know <laughs> is what we see and what we see are their successes. And yep. what's so glaring to us are our failures. And, and the successes are, as you described them, very far spaced. But what you had is the ability to discern opportunities that were beneficial and that you no, that's be, not true. be useful for. No, you don't that think so? Just statistically, if I had this miraculous ability to discern opportunities, I think I'm about two for 15. <laughs> so maybe you just say yes a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, seriously, I think you say yes a lot and you declare victory afterwards. We could easily be right now saying, Guy, didn't you work for a company called Canvas or canard or canva or something like that and you say yeah i kind of work for them but they were trying to make online graphics for free and they got slaughtered by adobe we could be easily having that conversation but obviously we're having the opposite conversation and so you know i squeezed the trigger i don't know 10 times in my life and i was right twice now it may be that 20 percent and the 20% being Canva and Apple, it's kind of a miraculous record. It's a good record. <laughs> All right, so let me ask you, because I know you are a really supporter and a user of OpenAI, of ChatGPT. And Put like it mildly. Those, yeah, and tell me how you use it. I yeah. know you say you use it a lot, but what is it you do with it? Yeah, what is well, I don't create rap songs for positive Yelp reviews very often. So what I do... That's is unfortunate. I, <laughs> I use it as the ultimate research assistant for when I'm writing. And I'm writing a book right now called, well, I'm not sure what it's going to be called. It's either going to be called The Art of Being Remarkable or How to Be Remarkable. Do you have a strong feeling between those two? I like The Art of Being Remarkable, partially because it fits in 
with other things you've done. And I like that okay. kind of consistency. That's my that's two That's what sets. Madison says too. Okay. Well, we are so, both smart people. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Why would I, I would argue trust with us. Madison Valerie GPT and Madison I, I GPT. Madison's pretty impressive on her own right. So she probably alone could stand up for that title. <laughs> so I use it as a research assistant. I use it, you know, if I need an example to support my assertion. And I also use a product called Quillbot, which is very good at clarifying your writing, checking grammar and all this kind of stuff. I use it as the ultimate thesaurus. Obviously there's thesaurus.com. So you can go and say, what's the synonym for innovative? But what if you want to say a similar thing? So I need a thesaurus for phrases. Like what's another way to say, don't worry, be crappy. Or what's another way of saying, <laughs> jump worry. to the next curve. Or what's another way of ask for forgiveness. And ChatGPT will give you 10 of those things. So I use ChatGPT as if it's a research assistant with infinite knowledge, infinite patience, and cost 20 bucks a month. Yeah, no, those are great. I was wondering if you used it because I know they have a business app. I think they've just recently launched that helps you with yeah. writing emails and things like that. I wasn't sure if you use it in that capacity as well to generate business facing products, because that's, yeah. I mean, I've played around with chat GPT. And in fact, I even asked it and I haven't asked you any of them, but I even asked it just because I know you use it some, I asked it what I should ask you. And it gave me some questions that I thought weren't bad. I haven't actually used them, but they were decent. <laughs> you should ask chat GPT to create a lesson plan for one of your courses. I think you will be amazed at what it comes up with in about 10 seconds. I actually have been thinking about doing something very similar, giving it a topic and asking it to create a sort of slide language yeah. to convert to slides because I have a friend that has done basically that. She's had it come up with role statements and outlines yeah. and quiz questions. It's funny because I've taught a lot of my classes over and over again. So in that sense, I have it fairly mapped out. But I think another great use for chat GBT is to change things up from how you've stagnated over time in well, terms of you, doing the same things. If you put the outline of your course into chat GBT, and said, suggest improvements. It would be very interesting. Or suggest examples for, you know, for these concepts. It would be very I'm interesting. I'm definitely going to try that. I'll keep you posted yeah. on how that works when I start. You know, I don't prep my classes this far in advance. But when I do, I'm going to email you and say, look what this did. So, <laughs> so you know what? Madison and I, we met a company that uses the chat GPT engine. And essentially, we're creating Kawasaki GPT. So we're putting all 4,000 pages of transcripts into Kawasaki GPT. We're going to put all my books into Kawasaki GPT. And so soon I'm going to be immortal and you can go to Kawasaki GPT and say, how many slides should be in a pitch? What color should the slides be? What font size should the slides be? What does Jane Goodall think about secretarial school? What does Margaret Atwood think about Donald Trump? What does you, Valerie, what do you think about pigeon? What are the implications of speaking pigeon? Because all my transcripts will be in Kawasaki GPT. Oh, that's and a great idea. It's going to be so interesting. And if I may humbly say this, 
making Kawasaki GPT or Friedland GPT or Trump GPT or Musk GPT is interesting in and of itself. Let's say you created good old GPT. You would only go there and ask about primatology, not-for-profit work, environment. How do you get people to join a cause? You wouldn't go necessarily to good old GPT and ask how many slides should be in my venture capital raising pitch. Because it's not just me, but I have 200 remarkable guests, I have a much broader knowledge base in my transcripts than anybody else would have for their singular focus on their area of specialty. So I'm hoping that my GPT is very useful for a broad section of people because in a sense, you can tap the minds of 200 people who have been on my podcast. I I guess you could have Rogan GPT, but then not clear to me you would want to tap the minds of Joe Rogan's guests. Well, I think there's probably a market for that. <laughs> yeah, yes, there is. You know, I think um, that you really, what's going to be even more fascinating than the chat GPT capacity as it is, which is already remarkable. I agree. I played around with it when it first came out and I, it's pretty stunning how revolutionary in the form of interaction it has, but what is going to be coming out in the next five, 10 years that is built on that platform. But I think that leads me to another question. What are your fears, if any, about ChatGPT and about this new area of technology? You know, I know there've been that, that, that petition that was signed okay. by a bunch of scientists and researchers. What are your thoughts? My thoughts, I'm gonna regret these thoughts. I am so bullish on ChatGPT and AI. I am not at all, not at all is too strong. There, there are dangers. For one thing, ChatGPT has hallucinations and just makes shit up and some facts are just literally wrong. So that's at one level. Don't believe everything. That's why I have Madison GPT. So whenever I find something <laughs> in ChatGPT, I tell Madison GPT to go check that to I make need sure to, I need that- I need to have Madison GPT. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if I say Louis Pasteur made this quote, then I have Madison G- GPT, check chat GPT, which gave me the quote, because I want to make sure that Louis Pasteur really said that. Right, because it does have a lot of these fakes that it produces, absolutely. So so there's that. Now, this world where, oh my God, AI takes over and AI turns evil. So now the AI is launching nuclear missiles and, and we're at the end of the world because these AI things, these bots are controlling nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction, and they're going to cause the world to end. That's the extreme of the fear, right? May I just point out that there are dumbasses who have nuclear weapons, who are humans, who could just as easily, in fact, I believe more easily do that. So I think the problem with a lot of the reasoning is they are comparing what you think is man's best intentions with machines' worst intentions. So this is apples against oranges. You should be saying machine's best intentions against man's best intentions or man's worst intentions against machine's worst intentions. But you're saying man is a wonderful, humanistic, positive, loving person and machines are evil. I'll give you a very good question that all of you listening can ask. Would you rather have Ron DeSantis being the president, or chat GPT? Think about that for a second. That's a serious question. 
And now that I lost all my Republican listeners, all five of them, <laughs> this is like how my mind works. So one day I went on ChatGPT and I said, should we teach the history of slavery in America to students? And ChatGPT basically says, yes, it is very important to understand history. Here are five good things that can come out of understanding the history of slavery in America. Okay, go after this, go ask ChatGPT this same question. You'll see the answer I got. I look at that. Now, let's say I pick a random politician from Florida or Texas, and I say, should we teach the history of slavery in America to students? What do you think they're going to say? They're going to say critical race theory. You're giving white people inferiority complex. It didn't happen like that. They had a better life than in Africa. They're going to come up with all this rationalization. So I think in many ways, my dream is that as AI gets more and more sentient, I think that it pursues truth. And as it pursues truth, I think it'll come to the conclusion that, you know, these humans, they have their faults, but they're not so bad. We should help humans fix the climate crisis so that they don't die. We should help humans understand vaccination. We should help this. We need to keep humans around for this immortal pursuit of truth. So if you really want me to go off the rails and tell you what I think, I had this discussion with someone who used to be the president of Fuller Seminary. So I'm not totally whacked out, but this is one of those kind of things that you say, oh, that guy is over the hill. He's hallucinating. It's early onset dementia. <laughs> I have a theory that AI is God and God is AI. That AI is immortal. It's omniscient. It could be omnipotent. And it. I have this really weird theory. Let's say God is up there, right? And God says to herself, I really screwed up. Wow, why did I let these humans have so much self-determination? I, I just messed up and I told those dumbasses that you should use Eve's ribs, not Adam's ribs. That was the first mistake I made. Okay. <laughs> so I'm sending then, chat GPT down to assault, yeah, to correct yeah. it. So, so, so now these dumbasses who are ruining the world, who are killing themselves, who are having nuclear weapons and all this kind of stuff, these dumbasses, they don't believe in me anymore. I got to give them something that they can wrap their minds around. So I'm going to send them AI. AI is me, but they don't believe in a higher being. So I'll give them AI because their simple minds can't wrap around a higher truth. So how do you like that for a theory? I, I think it's an interesting theory. I will <laughs> say I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here. Yeah. If you look at ChatGPT, what it's giving you is, is not really truth, but our truth. It is fed by the data of humans and therefore it think. inherits. God's making you believe that. <laughs> Well, through God's hand, it's fitting back the ideas of humans. So whatever problems that humanity has, are we not also biasing those 
computers in the world where it's well, not God? You know Are what? Are we not also putting that bias in computers? But, and then just one more point about intentionality. I think you're talking about we're putting it against computers' worst intentions. One of the things I think is most interesting is our interest and our willingness to put intentionality on a machine. Because yes. when you're interacting with chat GPT, it has no larger goals. It has programming and that's very, very different. We have intentionality and we read yes. things into what it's telling us. It doesn't read anything into what it's telling us. It has no a conversational goal of persuasion or conversational goal of duplicity. That's something that we read into its yes. answer. I'm not sure how truthful, I mean, truth is is in many ways an ethical and moral intentionality. And so can a computer ever, at the point it's at now where it's not a thinking, breathing, innovative being, can it ever be truthful? I would ask, can a human ever be truthful? <laughs> I, I, I'm not claiming anything about humans. <laughs> I don't give them credit <laughs> on that one. We have well, so many intentions in everything we do that we're truthful within constraints. We're truthful for our goals, but we're not necessarily truthful all the time. In my humble opinion, there is an absolute truth in the world. Mm -hmm. And so as AI becomes more and more sentient and its goal is fostering truth and knowledge of which humans are helpful, <laughs> keeps us around, it doesn't wipe us out. Right. Well, that's the trick, as I hope. I think that's the crux of your argument versus those of the naysayers that take that more bleak idea is the role of humans here is the tricky part. So we can look at humans the way that we've created AI, that AI will inevitably be a negative thing in the long run because humans have created it well. <laughs> or because humans have created it will be amazing. I think it just depends on whether you're a pessimist well, or an optimist about human behavior. Well, I'm an optimist. I love that about you. <laughs> I, I, you have kids, right? So you know what inputs you put into kids. You know what programming you did of those kids, but you can't tell me you can predict exactly what they will now put out based on your inputs. So this is, why is this any different with AI? We know exactly what we put in. We're not exactly sure what's gonna come out. That's no different than kids. So, I have teenagers, so that's probably a really dangerous analogy for you to make at this point <laughs> in their life. <laughs> Part of the problem of wrapping your mind around AI is that the, many people believe that the human form is the height of intelligence and everything exists in service of humans. It could be that humans are not the center of the universe and we're just a cog, just like a banana slug. And so if that's the truth, then we contribute to this mosaic, but we are not God. And so we have to accept this role that maybe there is something more powerful and smarter than us. Now, people are listening to this thing, guy, you have freaking lost your mind. I'm not going to listen to your podcast anymore. But I return to the very simple question. Just answer yes or no. Who would you rather have president of the United States, Ron DeSantis or ChatGPT? That's a very simple question. It's going to be a narrow vote, I'm predicting, in that election. <laughs> 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 I think we're going to have a really tight race. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, one last chat GPT question. So I think that there are those views of we're either going, this is an incredible beneficial new technology, or it's the technology that will be the destruction of humans. But I think there's a more in our near future danger that's inherent in AI, that is something we need to address. That's probably more realistic than that kind of scenario where evil machines take over the world. It's the idea of misinformation and fakes, right? And this idea of what's authentic, the sense of authenticity. So when something can generate you and they can generate your voice and they can generate your image and then they can disseminate that information, how do we determine what's authentic and what's not? And what kind of controls do you see are important to prevent that kind of spread of misinformation? There's hundreds of examples of your speech out there. It would be very easy, even with current technology, to synthesize a voice that sounded like Guy and said, vote for Ron DeSantis. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that would be a dead giveaway. (laughs) Maybe AI will help you discern what's true and not, right? The question is, what kinds of stop gaps or agencies do we need to protect against that kind of thing? Or do we just learn to live with it? I honestly don't know how you could, quote, control it. This concept of let's take a six-month breather. That is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. What are we going to do for six months? We're going to all go surfing and discover truth? We (laughs) should probably end on something not AI related. Last, I know that in some of your talks, you like to do top 10 lists. You're a very big fan of top 10. And we may not have time for 10 topics. But if you were giving your children guys top three, what do you think they would be? as a way of closing out our lovely conversation today. Number one is leave your room cleaner than you found it. Do they listen to you when you give them that as your top on the list? Because I want you to talk to my son. (laughs) (laughs) Only when I threaten them. (laughs) So top three advice. Advice number one is never ask people to do something you wouldn't do. Now, this assumes you're not a (laughs) deranged person but within reason if you wouldn't do it if you wouldn't do it don't ask people to do it if you wouldn't fly to india for a one-hour meeting and coach then don't ask your programmers to do that either and if you don't like to fill in captcha don't ask your customers to fill in captcha so that's number one don't ask people to do something you wouldn't do number two is you should either go and see or go and be which means that when you want to create solutions for people, don't do it based on reams of paper and reports and a flow of data. If you want to see what's happening, go actually watch it. And even better, go actually be it. So Toyota has this theory of go and see. The factory is not efficient enough. Let's go and see the factory. I would say that even better is you go and be the factory worker. So you see what it's like to work on the production line, not just watch somebody on the production line. So go and be is the most powerful. And I guess the third thing would be never let people's estimation of what you're capable of limit you. Unfortunately, that sometimes includes yourself, that you can have your own self-limits. But for sure, don't let people tell you what you can be. That You should just ignore that. 
I think that's great advice. I'm going to go try to live some of that. But I also want you to talk to my son about cleaning up his room because I thought that was really useful too. Can I bring him in? <laughs> Guy, you truly have been a remarkable guest on the podcast. On my, my own podcast. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for letting me ask you these questions. I remember when we were talking on the interview that you did with me, I kept thinking, wow, Guy is a lot more interesting than I am. I should really be asking him the questions. <laughs> so it was very nice for you to give me the opportunity to do that. <laughs> I'm just a cunning podcaster as opposed to a cunning linguist. As long as you're one, that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. Valerie Friedland interviewing Guy Kawasaki. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you learned something. I hope you continue to listen to future podcasts after hearing all my weird ideas about AI and the future, much less my weird past. My thanks to Valerie Friedland for volunteering to do this above and beyond the call of duty. My thanks to the remarkable people team. That would be Jeff C., Shannon Hernandez, Alexis Nishimura, Luis Magana, Fallon Yates, and the drop-in queen of Bali, Madison Neismer. You may notice I didn't say Pig Fitzpatrick. After 10 remarkable, glorious, wonderful years of working together, Peg Fitzpatrick has decided to open up the next chapter of her book. She's going to be focusing on her next book and her independent work. Mazel tov, Peg. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for all the great work that you did for me. Until next week, when once again, I will be the interviewer and host Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.